Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a bonus episode brought to you by Showmax. On the 18th of October this year, Showmax released the first episode of their brand new Showmax original documentary, Butibur, Inside the Mind of a Monster. The series, directed by Jason Howes, documents the life and crimes of a man whose name will likely be familiar to True Crime South Africa listeners, but possibly not to many other South Africans. I covered Stuart Wilkins' serial crimes in episode 45 of the podcast, so pretty early on in my podcast journey. And while I highly recommend listening to that episode if you haven't already, in conjunction with watching this new Showmax docky, Today's episode will provide you with a summary of the case, and in addition, I also managed to chat with Dr. Gerard Labuskakni, and you'll hear my interview with him in this bonus episode too. Dr. Labuskakni appears in Butibur, Inside the Mind of a Monster, and he almost very literally is one of the people who did try and get into Wilkins' mind. In 2006, he and his colleague at the SAPS's Investigative Psychology Unit, Colonel Jan Delange, visited Wilkin in prison, where he was, and still is, serving multiple life sentences. The audio recording of that interview forms the backbone of this documentary, and it's incredibly chilling to hear Wilkin talk about his crimes in his own words. The producers of the series acknowledge that this is likely one of the most disturbing true crime documentaries to come out of South Africa, and that is solely down to the nature of Wilkins' crimes. It is harrowing, but it's also important viewing from the perspective of understanding the developments of serial offenders. I've watched the first two episodes of the documentary, and it is incredibly well made. I particularly respect that Jason Howes has acknowledged the shift that's slowly happening in the true crime content community internationally to produce content like this ethically, with victims and their families in mind. Very often, people will respond to content like this, and I get a lot of the same pushback with some of my own stuff, with, why are you glorifying the killer by making documentaries about them? And Howes has directly addressed that in much the same way I do. We do this to understand, not to condone or to glorify, but to understand why. Because if we just shove these people into a box and label them evil, that doesn't serve the victims either. Nor does it help to prevent future victims. The documentary consists of five episodes, with one episode dropping each week from the 18th of October. It's a mix of background dramatization, actors are used to portray scenes, and main storytelling through the actual people involved – detectives, psychologists, and family members. Stuart Wilkin is, without a doubt, one of the most disturbing offenders I've ever covered on my podcast – and many of my listeners have indicated that the original episode I did on this case was also one of the most disturbing they've ever listened to. So do watch with caution. But if you're listening to this podcast, you are undoubtedly a consumer of the true crime genre, and this documentary really is a must-watch for you. 
Stuart Wilkins' childhood was incredibly difficult and abusive, at least at the very start. He and his sister were abandoned by their biological parents, and Stuart was taken in by a particularly abusive family. He lived with his family until he was nearly three, suffering unspeakable forms of abuse until he was eventually taken in and formally adopted by the Wilkin family. The rest of Stuart's childhood and teenage years, although he was in a far better environment with the Wilkins, was still spotted with significant difficulty. He became extremely hard to manage, and soon he was out in the world on his own. Wilkins' romantic relationships were often fraught with challenges too, and he very often had nothing good to say about his ex-girlfriends and wives. Wilkin began working on fishing boats, and it would later emerge that when he wasn't at sea, he, at least from 1990, had started carrying out some pretty horrific deeds on land. By the time Wilkin was arrested in 1997, he'd admitted to killing 10 people. He would later be convicted of seven of those murders. And if there's a rule book of sorts for serial murderers, Wilkin broke every single rule in the book. His victims spanned all ages, races, and profiles. Some of his victims were adult female sex workers, some were unhoused children. One was a child of a family he was friendly with, and perhaps most horrifyingly, he'd even killed his own biological daughter. Although many of his victims were killed by strangling, he also used knives in his murders. And when he started doing so, he introduced a new horror to his series, cannibalism. In addition, he would later admit he had also committed necrophilic acts with the corpses of his victims. Perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of Wilkins' series was the murder of his own daughter, Wuan. Wilkin murdered his daughter and kept her decomposing body with him in the rural spot he'd chosen to live in at the time. By the time he pointed out her body to police after his arrest, she was completely skeletonized. Wilkin would be convicted of seven murders and given seven life sentences for his crimes. For a more detailed view of the case, I'll link episode 45 in the show notes, or you can find it on the podcast player you're on right now. And this should also give you a good background to starting to watch the documentary. And when you hear that audio from Dr. Labaskakni's interview with Wilkin, I can guarantee it's going to send shivers down your spine. Dr. Gerard Labaskakni was the head of the SAPS's IPU from 2001 to 2016. During that time, he profiled hundreds of serial offenders and worked on countless psychologically motivated cases. He was not with the SAPS when Stuart Wilkin was arrested. At that time, Dr. Mickey Pistorius was still the head of the IPU. Despite not being with the SAPS at the time, he was already on his path to criminal psychology, and he says the case certainly did hit his radar in 1997. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I guess any serial that time was something that caught my attention. I wasn't a serial murder fanboy in those days. It was just, you know, curious about it. I didn't try to find out everything about it and who did this and what. 
I guess it was more like the public interest, like everybody, like a lot of other people would have had, because I hadn't foreseen that that was going to be, you know, my my future. I asked Gerard what the purpose was of him and Colonel DeLanger going out to interview Stuart Wilkin in 2006. So it was kind of like, I suppose you could say, you saw on that uh, TV show Mindhunter, you know, when the early days of the FBI, when they tried to understand these types of criminals better, and they decided to go and interview them in prison. So, you know, we'd often interviewed, of course, serial murderers in the course of an investigation, you know, but very often you're doing that, it's with a specific goal to get the person hopefully to confess or point out, you know, various crime scene locations, etc. So it has a very different purpose. You're not necessarily going to try and find out about the person's background and their thoughts as to why they did it. So this was intended more as to get just that background, thoughts, ideas. And of course, the fact that he was already convicted, you know, of course, when you're doing an investigation, he always has to worry about if I say this, how's that going to affect my trial, might it lead to more charges. But, you know, so we felt that going back, you know, a number of years afterwards, he's a time to reflect upon it. He's in his sentence. He's got life sentences. So he might be more open or whoever we go see would be more open to perhaps sharing more. And I mean, if again, if you ask him a little bit more about his personal life when he gets all worked up in an investigative interview, you have to worry about whether that's going to get him to stop talking because he's all upset. Whereas in this kind of interview, you can wait, you can, you know, walk, work through it, you can come back tomorrow uh, and then continue. So, mm. you know, it's just a different context, trying to get different information that you get compared to doing inter during an um, investigation interview. I wondered how they prepared for the interview. Would they have made sure to know all the facts of the cases so that they could know if and when Wilkin was lying? Or did that not matter in this context? You know, obviously, we had copies of the, the, I think the dockets, um, etc. So historically, the, the unit obviously knew about the case. You know, his, his sort of confession, if you want to call it that, that had background information about, you know, his great upbringing and the statements of, you know, family and stuff that were in the docket. So we had that as background preparation. And again, it wasn't like... It wasn't so much about, tell me exactly what you did during this particular incident. And I know you're lying. Tell me the truth. That, that's not really the focus. It was more about getting just uh, more about the background, you know, and him and his, who he was and, you know, why, what made you, what do you think made you do this? And, you know, what do you think about it now all these years later? And so just kind of getting a feel for him as opposed to tell me about another crime that you didn't confess to, or that's not true. You said this in your that that really kind of wasn't the – that's more of an investigative kind of interview, you know. I have been aware of the production of this documentary for some time, and I wondered what it would look like when it was finalised. I asked Gerard what his thoughts were when he was first approached by the producers and how he thought a documentary like this might add value. I just think it's, it's such a fascinating case that a lot of people just don't actually don't even know about. I mean, even when I was down there in PE for a different, shorter, like one episode documentary on it, and I was with, it was Paul Llewellyn, and he would, we would eat a restaurant and he would say, oh, and he would chat to the waitress and it's like, do you, have you ever heard a guy called Stuart Wilkin, like called Putibur? And like most people are like, no, what do you do? Who is he? And Paul said, well, he's a serial killer, isn't it? They're like, we're here. So it was quite interesting that, you know, our memories are, I guess it's also perhaps a generational thing. So there's value in stories because I think they, they get forgotten. And, you know, I think it's good that they're preserved in various formats. Why not? And it was, for me, just one of the most fascinating South African cases. It hadn't really been ever gotten much attention. 
you know, in, in this level. I think I might have spoke about it in one of my podcasts, either partially or a story, I can't remember. So I think it's there's value in these things being recorded in, in books, in various media forms, specifically because they're, they're older cases now. You know, a lot of people that were involved in these things are di- dead, dying, super old, not interested, forgotten. And, you know, when you have it preserved in this way, it's it's kind of it's like a time capsule. So I think there's value in in that kind of stuff. In researching, Stuart, for the podcast and other projects and listening to some of the reasonings behind his crimes, I often got the feeling that he had two distinct narratives around why he'd done what he did. In one narrative, he was the victim of the horrible things that had happened to him. And then at other times, he almost seemed to see himself as a savior, at least in the murders of some of the children, where he claimed to be saving them from what had happened to him. I asked Gerard if this had come across in his interview with Stuart at all. I, mean, I wouldn't say hero, but okay. definitely a victim. I mean, you know, if you look at the story he wrote, and then again, there's a statement by, I think, the lady who took him over after the first family picked him up. Mm-hmm. I think that there was Mrs. Wilkin, what's a Petronella Wilkin. And you know, she confirmed a lot of what the, the core issues of what he mentioned in his actual statement to court. So we have a bit of confirmation from that. So, I mean, definitely he's a victim of shit life you know whose fault it is i don't know but as you know that so many people have shit lives similar or worse but aren't hurting people so i mean yes he had an unfortunate life i never felt that you that he had a sort of himself in a hero but definitely as an avenger against mm. i guess specifically god as this being that is ultimately responsible for his shit life happening and not mm. looking after him, not protecting him so whether you want to be angry at your parents or God, it's just, you know, angry at somebody who's supposed to be looking after you mm. and failed, you know. So uh, so an avenger, but for a personal cause, not avenger for society, you know, like mm. a guy who wants to go to prostitutes because they're all evil. But I never, never got a sort of hero. I mean, even when he said, I mean, oh, I, my daughter, I realized she's going to, she had been molested and he didn't want her to go through all the things he went through. So he killed her. I mean, I wouldn't even see that as him been heroic. It was be him, I guess, as a twisted altruism in his own word version of events. But One of the things that makes Wilkins stand out as a serial murderer is the fact that he killed his own biological child. Daisy Demelka, of course, did so, but she was not technically classed a serial killer because she was only convicted of one murder. Fred and Rose West in the UK did kill a biological child, But even there, Rose allegedly committed the murder while Fred was in prison for something else, and the child was actually Fred's biological child and not Rose's. I asked Gerard if he could think of any other serials who'd murdered their own children. I'm trying to think of just in general serials here that have killed someone that they even just know. I'm sure there must have been, but I can't think offhand one that had killed a daughter. You know, the Black Widow types, probably, yes. Or fan, I can't think of one that had killed the daughter, their own daughter. Mm-hmm. So, And of course, that wasn't the only thing that makes Stuart stand out. In addition to that, he also committed both necrophilia, which is sexual acts with a deceased person, and cannibalism, which I probably don't have to expand on, but in the interests of completeness, is the consumption of flesh or body parts from a species by that same species. In this case humans. 
And Gerard said that this was also incredibly rare in his experience. I'm trying to think off the top of my head how many others. I've had necrophilia in other cases, but cereals, not pure necrophilia, like when they had sex with the body, you might get something to come back and masturbate. I think yeah. sort of totally did that. And I mean, cannibalism stuff, I mean, the only other ones that there's a rumor of it was that Vessels and Harbenkar. Mm. It's kind of like the story that, you know, the one he says, oh, no, I was just sitting on top of the body eating the food that was in the, in the hiker's backpack and people saw it. And so I don't know whether that became a myth and a myth that they perpetuated mm. because it suited them to perpetuate that horrible myth. I don't know. But I'm often at cannibalism coming into cases where there was mental health issues. And he says that even in this case, those behaviors in Stuart's just seem to appear out of nowhere with no warning. You don't see any signs of it before. You don't see any signs of it after. And I just think it was like an experimentation. You know, would he have done it again? No, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. He didn't seem overly put off by what he did when I spoke to him. I wondered if the swapping around of the victim profiles was also some sort of experimentation for Wilkin. No, I think he just had different people that he was angry with. Like, so, you know, he was angry, like, with his previous girlfriend, wives, I can't remember which number one, which he said cheated on him, and she was also a prostitute. So I think that kind of was brewing of his, of his anger towards adult sex workers. And then the kids, it was a different kind of, you know, God, I'm going to show you what you did to me, and I'm going to now do it to kids just to prove you, punish you. So I think they had different, the different, the bigger types, adult sex workers and street kids were for different motives from his point of view. Each class had his different reason why he was perhaps targeting them. I'm a big picturing stuff in my head person, which doing what I do can sometimes be an occupational hazard. But I did want to be able to picture this interview going down. So I asked Gerard to describe the scene to me. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the prison was a very nice prison. I was quite impressed, I must admit, when I went down there. It's very organized. You kind of have the feeling of what you think American prisons are like that working that are working properly. And um, we kind of then, even like the cell area, if I recall correctly, that like those double story and the, the big open area in the middle with tables. That was, if I kind of remember that sort of what you see on American TV kind of vibe. We literally were just sitting in an office in front of a table, the table between us. It was me, Yanni, and, and, and Stuart Wilkin, and just chatted. He himself, he's, he's a shortish guy, if I recall correctly, and he was quite pudgy, you know, when he came in. I think when he was a fisherman, if you look at some of those pictures, he was probably quite stocky and no extra fat, really. But uh, he was quite a chubby little guy. When we saw him, sort of scraggly beard still, if I recall correctly, and um, and just like not... He's just, he's not a very sophisticated guy, you know, so don't expect contemplatory thought thinking and and sort of words and metaphors to describe what he's feeling. He's just kind of like, it's like that, I guess that kind of guy, the fisherman kind of guy, not a great big intelligent thinker. So it wasn't a sophisticated conversation, if I can put it that way. As I said, Afrikaans, plot will be odd kind of guy. My last question was about Wilkins' drug use during the period when he was committing his crimes. It was mentioned during the trial, but not much seemed to be made of it, and although I don't particularly think it played any major role in his crimes, I wondered if he'd mentioned this when he was interviewed. Yeah, I mean, look, I haven't listened to the interview for a while, but I do recall him mentioning, you know, smoking Dacha and Mandrax was kind of, I think, seen as a really fairly part of his life. He didn't 
I didn't get the impression, if I recall correctly, that he was trying to, I don't recall him blaming it on the Poles, but definitely, you know, smoking marijuana and, and smoking Mandrax was kind of like the lifestyle. So with that as your background, you now need to go and watch as many episodes of Booty Boor Inside the Mind of a Monster that are out on the Showmax platform by the time you're listening to this. It really is an incredibly made documentary, and I have no doubt it will stay with you for a long time after you've watched it. I know True Crime South Africa listeners are always up for bonus material, so a huge thank you to Showmax for bringing this bonus episode to listeners as a supplement and introduction of sorts to their brand new Showmax original. Do be sure to share your thoughts about the documentary on our social media platforms and invite your companions in true crime to listen and watch. I'll see you on the other side. <laughs>